The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. How do you build trust with somebody? I think the first thing that I learned, and it came from the book of reading um, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, right? So for me, I always tried to be more interested than interesting. Right. I was always asking questions. I was always trying to figure out how I could serve somebody else. So how I was building trust and relationships is I was trying to give value to any and everybody, whether that meant that I was just giving you the information on the real estate game, whether that means that I was connecting you with somebody. At the end of the day, I think most people have a good heart. I think that what happens, though, for a lot of people is the way that you carry yourself, you got to be able to adapt in any room. I never felt like I had to sell my soul. I never felt like I had to do it. I was always me. My graduates from my school being Forbes. Backdrop. Backdrop. <laughs> a mic drop. Backdrop. Backdrop. All right, guys. Welcome back. EYL. This is a dope episode because it encompasses a lot of parts of the EYL tree. So, home team edition. <laughs> yes, very important. Um, so Casanova Brooks, I actually interviewed with Casanova at the very, very beginning stages of Earn Your Leisure. Like, I don't know what episode, but it was probably before episode 10, like when Earn Your Leisure was still in his infancy stages and he had a podcast and he asked me to come on. And um, I did the episode, he still has a podcast, Dream Nation. And one of the reasons why I said it's part of the EYO tree is that it's actually on EYO Network. Um, Dream Nation podcast. If you're not familiar with it, check it out. He interviews a lot of dope entrepreneurs and people in business and gets, you know, breaks down their, their business models, goes into their brains, asks them, you know, the questions that needs to be answered. Um, so I knew Casanova for probably three years now. And very, very inspirational and motivational story. We'll get to that. But he's one of these people that does a lot of different things. So real estate agent, um, investor, uh, he's in media, he's a podcast host. He has a daycare center. That's impressive. Um, anything I'm forgetting? I got you. Father. Father. He loves right. that. Yes. Well, we had too many basketball conversations. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Definitely most, most father. Important. Yeah, most important. Um, Family man. So, yeah, I feel like this is going to be a dope conversation from the you know content perspective, from the real estate perspective, from the daycare perspective. That's always, that's always an interesting conversation because – that business is always going to be booming no matter what. Um, so yeah, I, I'm looking forward to this and I feel like this is going to be one of those things where you can pull multiple gems from yeah. and have multiple different segments, multiple different stories because his story encompasses a lot of different things. Yeah, triumph, adversity, all that. It, it, your life story is just incredible. So I'm excited for everybody to hear it. It's going to be dope. 
Yeah, man, I appreciate you, brothers. Uh, just as you said, I mean, uh, it's so crazy that when we first got started, like I just reached out to you because I was just starting the Dream Nation thing and I reached out, never knowing if you was going to say, yeah, you would come on or not, but just willing to share your story. And so it's definitely inspiring to see both of y'all brothers. And, you know, first time I got an opportunity last year when y'all hit me up about coming to Invest Fest, I couldn't because CJ had nationals <laughs> for basketball. Mm -hmm. But then this year when I got to see it, and I was like, man, like, these brothers is doing it. So I'm excited to be a part of the family. I'm obviously excited to be able to share anything that I've been able to do. And uh, yeah, man, let's get it cracking. No, let's do it, man. Definitely. You was at InvestFest. You took part in that. Um, so thank you for that. Hosted the panel for us. So that's always, you know, a special, yeah. special open, situation within itself. Open, so. open, open the show up, man. How oh, man. It, it was crazy. I tell you. Like, first off, shout out to the love that y'all showed me because I always said that I felt like the, the like when people would be like, yo, you EYL, you part of the family? And they see like my videos on like the the YouTube channel. Yeah. And I'm like, I've always said that I felt like I was like the, the stepbrother or something, <laughs> right? Because I never, I was never at any of the events or anything yeah. like that. So the first time being able to go to the event and what y'all put on was phenomenal for the culture. But even on top of that, just the love that y'all showed me, I was like, yo, this is super dope. And then being able to kick off the show and the relationships, like I was saying, Mikel, shout out to Mikel Quarles with Chase Bank. But uh, last night, he just was in Dallas and we had dinner last night. But that came because of the access and the relationships that I built and having him on the panel. So, uh, yeah, man, I'm super blessed to be here. I'm super blessed to be a part of the family and InvestFest. I can't wait for InvestFest 2023 because uh, it's only going to be bigger and better. That's yeah, a fact. My, dad, my dad was on that panel. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was dope, man. Appreciate Super that. Dope. Absolutely. So let's get into this. So when I met you, you were living in Omaha, Nebraska? Correct. Yeah, I was in Omaha. So Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> Him and Warren Buffett. Yeah. <laughs> the Oracle of Omaha. But you're from the south side of Chicago. Right. So it's a crazy story. And now you're in Dallas. Now I'm in Dallas. So, But it's a crazy story from the Chicago situation to the Omaha situation. So before we get into the business stuff, can you tell your story? Yeah, absolutely. So always when people ask, like, how did how did everything come about for me? I'm originally from South Side of Chicago, raised by a single mom. Dad was never in my life. Now I'm the only child on my mom's side, but last I knew I had 13 brothers and sisters on my dad's side, mm. but he never did anything to bridge the gap of the relationship. So for me, I always grew up as an only child. And uh, then when I was about 10, 11 years old, I guess my first, uh, my first running with adversity was when I was eight years old. So I had my two best friends. We did everything together. We would always go to uh, Lake Michigan or what they call Rainbow Beach. So we'd always go and we'd be out there just swimming, whatever. They came over one Sunday morning and they're like, yo, we about to go to the beach. You want to go? And just for whatever reason, I'm like, nah, you know what? I'm going to sit this one out. Um, they're like, all right, we'll catch you when we come back. Well, they never came back. We're coming to find out a couple hours later, they both wound up drowning off of the pier at Lake Michigan. They were trying to swim or surf off of the pier. So why I wasn't right there with them doing everything that they was doing, I always say, I don't know, God, my creator, somebody had a bigger purpose for my life. So that was kind of that first time that I really experienced adversity because I went from being a normal kid to then all of a sudden I see teachers, anybody that was older that was like, hey, are you okay? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, or how are you? And I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. So it was kind of me trying to figure out like, what do you mean? Like, why did, why did the situation change up? And obviously I had to 
figure out how I was going to move on without my two best friends. Then when I'm 10, 11 years old, uh, I'm really starting to be inundated with drugs, gangs, violence. That's what's all around me. And my mom was super well connected with the Moes. So she would always be like, yo, just do me a favor. Keep him away. So there was multiple the times I the remember. Folks in, the folks in the Moes. Right? <laughs> and so she was like, yo, just keep him up out of that. <laughs> and so uh, I remember there was multiple times where they'd be like, yo, Cass, get up off this corner. Like, we don't know what's about to happen, but we see people driving by. Get up off this corner. Right? So I, I could have been an innocent bystander in, in times like that. Mm -hmm. And then my grandma, uh, so she stepped in early on to be that father figure in my life. Uh, salute to my grandma. She's still alive. She lives in Chicago. I'm super close to my grandma. And so uh, she wound up uh, basically just seeing it. And I had cousins who uh, graduated from Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin. So they wound up uh, getting job opportunities out in Sioux City, Iowa. And so my grandma, uh, she, we go out there, we on a Greyhound, we go check it out. Next thing I know, we come back less than two weeks later, all my stuff's being packed into a U-Haul. And my grandma makes the decision that she about to move me to, to Sioux City, Iowa. So my mom came, she came kicking and screaming. But it was crazy because I go from big city Chicago, seeing only people who look like us, to now I'm in a town of 80,000 people, cornfield cattle, seeing nobody who looks like who'd, me. Who'd you live with? Uh, my mom and grandma. Oh, they right? moved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, so they moved up. Everybody packed up and moved. Everybody up. packed up and moved. My gotcha. mom came unwillingly, right? But I'm her only child and she like, Shh. but I mean, the whole way she was kicking and screaming. She didn't want to be there. But it was all because of me and just getting me into a better opportunity. So obviously I, I then, I'm living in Sioux City, Iowa, and I always say there's a silver lining in everything. And for me, that silver lining was I didn't grow up with an ignorant mindset. Right. Which means that just because you don't look like me doesn't mean that you can't be with me and you got to be against me. And so I was like, OK, so it forced me early on to be able to build relationships is basically how it went. So I'm normal kid, finish off middle school. I'm then in high school. I'm playing sports and popular basketball, football track. Everything's going well for me. And then all of a sudden my sophomore year, I'm 15 years old at this time. And I just find myself walking through the hallways and I can't really breathe. So I told my guys and they're like, yo, it's probably because football just got done with, you know, basketball just starting up. You probably out of shape. And I'm like, yeah, you probably right. Well, then I'm going home and I'm just taking naps. And my mom's like, yo, what's up with you? Like, I'm like, I don't know. I'm just tired. She's like, all right, well, if it persists, you know, we about to go to the hospital. So I'm like, all right. So then next couple of days, it persists. We go to the emergency room. And obviously, whenever it's something about breathing, they keep you overnight. So when they tell us they're about to keep me overnight, I'm like, shit, I'll, I'm cool with it. All I've seen, because I've growing up, I never had chicken pox, measles, coronavirus. I never broke <laughs> a bone, like nothing. I was never in the hospital. So I'm thinking all, all I saw was on TV. I'm thinking I'm about to get a hot nurse, sponge bath, ice cream, video games. like, yeah. And I'm back the next day. Coming to America package. Right. <laughs> like a Biggie, Biggie song. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so I was like, all right, bet. So they come back in, it's like 11, 1130 at night. And uh, I remember them telling like, hey, we got public transportation. We actually about to ship you guys to the other side of the state. And my mom's like, yo, what do you mean? Like, what's up? And they're like, well, we think it might be a little bit more serious. And my mom's like, what's more serious? And they're like, we think you might have cancer. And then I just, my grandma like, whoa. And they're like, yeah, we, we don't know the extent of it. We're going to ship you guys to the University of Iowa. So that's what they did. Next morning, 8 a.m., I find myself, University of Iowa, they running all these tests on me. Doctors come back in. It was like, yeah, he's got stage four lymphoma cancer. We got to do emergency surgery, put a port in his chest. It's connected to my jugular vein. Over the next two years, I experienced chemotherapy, bone marrows, just about anything that anybody else does when it comes to the C word. So shit, that was kind of like, 
That was the big, obviously. How, how old were you? I was 15. So, so by, you're doing this until you're 17. You tell I'm 17. So I was a sophomore in high school. So again, a huge change in my life. Because yeah. I go from being a normal kid, sports, everything's going. Then all of a sudden I come back after, because I was at the University of Iowa for probably about four months. Right? So then when I finally get back, I seen that like everybody, the, the energy shifted. Right. I then went from being a victor to the victim because everybody like, oh, are you OK? Like mm -hmm. teachers like you need to go take a nap, all these things. And then even after school, people like, oh, we about to go to the party. But me knowing that I got to go to the cancer center for two and a half hours. I'm like, man, you know what? I'm just going to go hang out with my mom because I had to figure out a way to always not be looked at as a victim. So that was a big time for me at, at that time. And then um, I always I say for me, though, here's what I say. At the end of the day, I told my mom, like, yo, I went through it because people always ask me, like, yo, how were you able to, to get through this? And I always say, like, I don't really know. I just know that I was I was really raised by two strong black women. Right. That, that really got me through it because it was the never let them see you sweat mentality. Mm -hmm. But the day that I, I, I was cured and the doctors came in and was like, yo, yep, he's free to go home. There's no more treatment. I remember looking at my mom and grandma and being like, yo, if it ever comes back, I'm going out comfort care style. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it was just I mean, it's so demanding on your body and just so many memories that I have from it. But it obviously, you know, only the strong survive. And I was able to, to keep building from it. So from there, from um, finishing off high school, I then went to the University of Iowa for a couple of years. And then that's really where the entrepreneurship in, in me started to grow because I had to try to figure that out. A lot of people, when they learn my story, I mean, I probably did probably 23, 24 different jobs like I've. Everything besides selling crack and coke, I'm done it. Right? I a lot of people don't know I played poker for a living for two years. They shut down online poker. This was back in 2012. They shut down online poker, and then I got my passport, moved to Montreal, Canada for three weeks just so I could continue to make money while CJ is about to be born in three months from that time. So it was crazy. I mean, I did it all. And so it, it's been a crazy journey, but that was kind of my second storm of adversity. And then third storm of adversity, which is kind of how we get to, to Omaha. So I got a job opportunity to move out to Omaha. And uh, originally we were always going to move down to, to Kansas City, right? Because I just wanted to get out of Sioux City. I wanted bigger. I wanted more urban. I wanted diverse. And so we was going to move down there, but I had no family, nobody that we knew in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. So I got a job opportunity at Omaha, which is like that midway point. We didn't know anybody in Omaha neither. Either, but the thought was, well, look, if Omaha's not, if Omaha's still not big enough after we figure out what we could do here, then we'd go that much further away from our family who was all in Sioux City, mm -hmm. right? And so that was how we was going to build it. So we moved to Omaha, get a job opportunity. I crush it. Within nine months, I finished as number eight in the entire company, Fortune 500 company. And uh, at this time, they start doing management opportunities. And so I'm putting my name in the hat, but I keep getting passed over. And then so one time they brought in a guy and dude was out of uh, Overland Park, Kansas. So I remember going to my director and I'm like, yo, I want to, why am I not getting these opportunities? And he like, oh, Casanova, you just, you haven't been here long enough, you know, all these other things. So from that moment, it kind of clicked for me and it was like, ah, I get it. Like in the corporate world, it feels like everybody could tell you no, but nobody could tell you yes. Right. So I'm like, yo, so this this I ain't going to stick around for this long. So now I'm going home. I'm frustrated. And um, I wound up uh, catching a, a YouTube video, which is kind of how the real estate things start. And uh, in the video, he says, you know, you got to find a way to be the Lord of your land. Why? Because he or she who owns the land makes the rules. And I was like, oh, shit, like that was super dope. And I was like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be the Lord of my land. But then about 15, 20 minutes later, 
that energy wore off. And I was like, well, how the hell do I become the lord of my <laughs> land? Because nobody in my family ever owned house, car, business, land, nothing. So I was like, well, how the hell do I do that? So I looked deeper into his story and he started out as a real estate agent. Right. And so I was like, well, shit, I don't know anything about owning land. But what I do know is how to build relationships with people. So how about I just build relationships, I get my license, I build relationships with people, I serve them, help them buy, sell, or invest, and then in return, I'll take my commissions, and that's how I'll become the lord of my land. Ernest, check this out. If you're looking to add to your podcast list, I got one you definitely need to check out. The new Audible original, Direct Deposit, What Happens When Black People Get Rich, hosted by Chad Sanders, the author of Black Magic, What Black Leaders Learn from Trauma and Triumph, and TV writer of Rap Shit. Direct Deposit explores what it takes to get rich and stay rich while black in America. For all my young black entrepreneurs, you must tap in. Direct Deposit seeks to answer the questions, what's money going to do for me? What's money going to do to me? It's quite a dilemma. Chad went from sleeping on a mattress on the floor in his cramped apartment to nearly overnight success after the legendary Spike Lee signed on to develop one of his scripts. After becoming more and more successful, Chad has realized that his bank account might change but the struggle remains. Chad speaks to prominent black figures in American pop culture like Issa Rae, Gabrielle Union, and Soledad O'Brien. Visit audible.com slash direct deposit to listen now. And then, so that was the path that I set on. So I got my real estate license three months later. And uh, then right at the same time, I knew that right when I was getting my real estate license, I wasn't going to be able to build my business uh, inside of a cubicle in a nine to five all day. Right. So I was like, okay, so I got to get an outside sales job if I want to keep it going. So my thought was and it was another Fortune 100 company um, that was in there. But my thought was I'd be like, hey, and it was a payroll company. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of paychecks, but uh, they they big here in New York. Mm-hmm. They based yeah. out of like mm-hmm. Rochester. Mm-hmm. So I got a I got a job with them. So my thought was I'd be like, Troy, you need help with your payroll? You're like, nah, I'm good. I'm like, all right, what about buy, selling or investing in the real estate? Like, I can help you with whatever you need it. And so um, got that job. I'm like, bad. Like, I'm going to double dutch it, right? So once I make enough money from real estate, I'm leaving that job and I'm good. So I got that. On top of that, since we had the, uh, I had a solid job now, we also just put our first house that we were going to live in under contract. My wife and I did. So we're like, all right, man. So it's everything is good. I got a real estate license, solid job in a house. All in Omaha. All in Omaha, gotcha. right? I'm still within my first year of living in Omaha. Okay. Knowing nobody, know nothing, but I'm like, man, I'm on the path. Right? Keep in mind, I got no degree, no nothing. So I'm like, this is, I'm going to be good. So my mom and grandma called me up at the same time and, and they like, yo, we want to move down to Omaha, be closer to you, Julie, and CJ, because there's nothing left here in Sioux City for us. I'm like, all right, cool. Talk to Julie. Within a couple weeks, we had moved them down to Omaha. So it's like, all right, great. Well, within 24 hours, my mom winds up going to the hospital in Omaha. So literally I helped them finish. We, we bring them down in the U-Haul, everything by about four or five o'clock. I know I got to go to work the next day. So I'm like, all right, I'll um, come back tomorrow when I get off work, I'm going to finish helping you guys unpack. So uh, next morning I wake up, I had a voicemail from like 3 a.m. from my grandma. And she's like, hey, your mom was having some pains. We actually headed to the hospital. Give us a call when you wake up. So I give them a call when I wake up. It's probably 6.30, 7 o'clock at night. And I talk to them. They're like, yep, they're running some tests on your mom. You know, I'll let you know how it goes here in a little bit. She's in the back. I'm like, all right, I'll be there in a minute. By the time I get there, my mom has slipped into a coma. So it's like, oh, my God. So now it's the whole thing. So now on top of that, since I just started at Paychex, they have this thing where they send everybody up here to Rochester. Before they'll let you talk to any of their clients or anything, you got to go complete the training. I'm supposed to leave in three days for this training. 
So I don't want to go. I'm like, man, I like, nah, my mom's here. She's laid up. Nurses, my wife, everybody like, nah, like we got her. She's going to be good. You know, everything's on the up and up. You go, you know, because you got to keep this job because you got to get this house. I'm like, all right, cool. So I go. I'm up in Rochester. Next couple of days, my mom starts to get better. I'm talking to her on the phone. She's getting better. She's at least coherent. I'm like, all right, cool. But then by, by what I was supposed to be there for a week and a half, I want to say the fourth day, my mom calls me that morning. We talked that morning. Um, she wasn't giving me a call back that afternoon. I missed the call. I then go to call her back. Never talk again. My mom, I call, it was probably about, I called two or three times after that. My mom, uh, she doesn't answer. And then all of a sudden I get a, a, a call from the hospital. And they're like, hey, I just want to let you know your mom just took her last breath. And I'm like, oh, my God. And, and what was crazy about it was I, I texted her probably around 1 o'clock. And I said, I can't wait to talk to you and see your beautiful face. And, uh, and she was like, I can't wait to talk to you neither. Right. But then when she called me and I missed that call, it was like she knew. Right. She knew like I'm like. And so obviously, you know, that was a tough thing for me. So I flew back. Next flight, 4 a.m., I'm back in Omaha, handled all the funeral arrangements over that next week or so. And then um, then my manager comes back, and she's like, hey, Casanova, I know it's been tough. She's like, but uh, we need you to go back out to Rochester to finish out this training. And I'm like, with all due respect, I can't. Like, my grandma, my grandma's 72 at this time. She's living in Omaha, knows nobody. We got them an apartment. And I'm like, my grandma, my wife, my son, like, they need me here. I can't leave them again. And she's like, I get it, but this is corporate. Like, you don't even got a territory. If you don't, like, I got to let you go. And I'm like, think, Casanova, think, think, think. I'm like, look, I just got this real estate license. I close on this house in three weeks. If you would just give me this three weeks so I can close on this house, you'll never have to hear from me again. So she like, let me see what I could do. Super grateful. Lady's name is Sharon Martin, in case she ever sees this. But um, super grateful for that. She comes back. She's like, all right, I got you. So she allows me to put in a three-week notice. So I'm like, bam, all right. So we're going up to the three weeks, going up to the three weeks. We're supposed to close on that Friday. That Wednesday prior to, underwriters come back. And they say, hey, we want more information on the student loans that are in deferment from the University of Iowa. Damn. So I'm like, I'm like, man, okay, by the time they get the information, it's that following Monday. Then what happens? This is post-2008, so they're not just giving away loans no more for nothing. Paychecks then, or uh, the underwriters, the, the bank calls up paychecks to re-verify employment, and Paycheck says, ah, as of Friday, it's gone. Casanova no longer works here. So, of course, they didn't give me the, they didn't give me the loan because the loan officer calls me up, dude, what the... I'm like, man, I just met you two weeks ago. I'm going through the craziest time. I can't tell you the moment you give me a loan, I'm no longer going to have a job, right? So obviously they didn't give me the loan. So all within a matter of two and a half weeks, I lose my mom, I lose my job, and I lose my home. No family, no friends, no church group, no nothing. I'm like, what am I going to do now? No degree, no money. And I was going to go back and get a W-2 job. I swear to God, I was just going to figure it all out and do it over again. My wife's like, nah, you got this real estate license. You ain't done nothing with it. You're either going to jump all in, you're going to make something shake, or you're going to always be wondering what if, and you know how that goes. So I jump all in, scared, not knowing how am I going to build a real estate business, any of that. Within that next nine months, I did 46 deals worth $8 million in volume. I got the rookie of the year in the state of Nebraska. And that's where my journey started to take off from, from a real estate perspective. And then from there, everything became a domino effect. So that's kind of. That's a lot. A lot. That's a lot. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. House, 
well, mom, recipes to mom, job, house. Yeah. I, I need to talk about mental fortitude. Yeah. What what gets you through that? Before we even start getting homes and obviously you have the conversation with your wife to say like, yo, you got to do this. What type of mental fortitude did you like have to, like what were those days and nights like as you're building to get this first property? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll tell you, it was, what was crazy about it. So my wife's uh, second aunt, like uh, this lady, she was going through a divorce. She lived in Omaha. We never talked to her, but obviously with us going through that time, she was going through a divorce. So she like, look, y'all could come stay in my basement while I'm going through this. Y'all just pay me a little bit of rent. So we wound up paying her $500. So she had one bedroom in the basement and she had a, a really big utility room, right? So we gave CJ the bedroom in the basement and then we took the utility room. So what was crazy about it, I mean, literally utility room, think about it, it's a furnace, a water heater, concrete walls, Furnace, water heater, concrete walls, like that's it. So we could hear everybody in his house. It's not like an apartment, but literally you could hear her walk in when she's in her kitchen, everything. So every night what's crazy about it is I'm going to sleep next to a furnace and a water heater, right? But I'm trying to convince people that they need to buy homes, right? <laughs> which, is, which is crazy. And I'm selling homes. Yeah. And, but, but people don't know that I'm going back to sleep next to a furnace and a water heater. So for me, I'll tell you when the moment that everything that I was thinking about every single day was that my son was watching me. Right. At that moment, I understood that I could fight or I could flight. My mom wasn't coming back. Right. But what would she have wanted me to do? And I think that that's something that we all look at at the end of the day. We think about everything that we want to instill into our kids. Right. Is you got to continue to fight the fight. Right. And, and so that was what it was. But I'll be honest, like there was many a nights that I was crying. Right. And my wife was my rock. They say that you never know uh, when you're at your rock bottom until you're the rock or you never know how strong you are when you're at rock bottom until you're the rock at the bottom. Right. And that was what it was like for me. I felt like there was no other way to turn. I didn't have a degree. I knew nobody. I'm in a rich, white Catholic state, just to be honest. Right. When we start, first started talking about this, we said Omaha. Who's the first people people think of? Warren Buffett. The Wizard of Oz. Right? <laughs> yeah. So that was what it was. But I knew that at the end of the day, my heart was in the right place. I knew that I had the gift of being able to build relationships. And I knew that at that very moment, it wasn't my end. And so I, I didn't really even have time to, to, to process and everything else because I didn't have anything. So it just instantly went to like, yo, let's get to work. Let's get to work. Let's build relationships. And at the end of the day, that's how it all worked out for me. So it was many a nights that I cried, but I think that uh, because I had my wife and I had my son and I knew that he was always going to be, you know, he was going to wonder like, dad, why didn't you? Especially when I try to have conversations with him about basketball and how you got to continue to fight. It's mm -hmm. like, yo, bro, well, you ain't fighting. <laughs> right. So I never I never wanted that. So. Yeah. So let me ask you this. At what point? How did you become the real estate rookie of the year? And like you said, a state where is I'm assuming at least eighty percent white. Yeah, and you, and so. you you didn't you you never you don't have a history of selling real estate, right? So how you how did you hit the ground running and sell? What was it? How much was it? Forty six deals, eight million in real yeah. estate. Not much. How did you do that? Yeah, yeah. So first thing that I did, uh, and, and so so at first. When I first go, I, I joined a real big brokerage, right? Thinking that that brokerage is going to help me sell houses because they had the name, right? And coincidentally, it was Berkshire, right? So I'm thinking Berkshire in Omaha, right? This is going to be great. My first day, my broker brings me in, puts me in a cubicle, right? Remember, I left the cubicle for inside stuff. Puts me in a cubicle, gives me a stack of scripts and was like, get to call it. 
And I'm like, all right, this ain't going to work, right? So what I started doing was I had to figure out what was going to be my lane. And my lane was I knew I had to get in front of people. So I started doing open houses, right? The other thing was I was doing three to five coffee and lunches every single week with anybody who would meet with me, right? I was having conversations because I knew that I had to get my name out there, right? If they don't know you, they can't flow you. So that was what I was doing, three to five coffee and lunches every single week. Then on top of that, uh, while I was doing the open houses, in the beginning, I was doing open houses and it would be like one to four, right? So that'd be my whole afternoon on a Saturday. But then one day, I, somehow I was at uh, I was at a meeting, but somebody was like, yeah, I do two open houses a day. And then it, it was an aha for me. I was like, yo, I got to do something different. So then what I started to do was I would pick two price points, one at like 185000 right, which is more like first-time homebuyers. But then I would try to go do one in the luxury market. So this helped me in both ways because I didn't know the path that I even wanted to go. When a lot of people get into real estate, they want to go luxury market. But that's a hard barrier to break into, right? And especially, I was out in West Omaha. So West Omaha, like, don't nobody look like you, right? At least don't nobody look like me. So when I was in these houses, when I tried to tell somebody, I had to be that much more prepared. And I was brand new, so I didn't know what I didn't know. So I was like, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to do one from 12 to 130 and a first-time home buyer price point. And then I'm going to go do one from 2 to 3.30 or 2 to 4 in a luxury market, which was something that was more 400000 and above. So I was doing that and I was doing them every single week. And I probably did it for probably two months, three months before I had my first client that walked in. And uh, it was a young couple, right? And uh, they was 25, probably 25, 26 years old. They walk in, young, white couple, right? But they was cool. I didn't judge the book by its cover, though, because everybody else, keep in mind, in Omaha, average home price at this time was probably $215,000. i am sitting in a $600,000 house. So most of the people that's coming in there, right, this is not big city, they 40, 50 years old. Now I see this couple that comes in, they 25 years old. I'm like, man, they ain't buying nothing. But I ain't judge a book by its cover, right? I literally just started building relationships, same process, everything. So they wound up buying their first home with me for 600000 And that was what kind of broke it in. Mm. Then on top of that, so this was what, two months later? Because um, this was all in October. So this this was two months later. They closed on it in December. So a week before they're supposed to close as well, uh, the client calls me up and he's like, hey, my stepdad, uh, you know, he's got a property to sell and he wants to sell, he wants to list the house. And he was like, uh, do you, you, would you be okay with it? Now, keep in mind, I got no other clients. I got no nothing there, right? And I'm like, uh, well, let me check my schedule. Let me see what I could do, right? And then I wound up listing that house. And that was kind of where it all started to take off from. But for me, I say the whole focus for me when I was building that was everything was about relationships. Everything was about relationships. Every time you see me, I knew that my energy had to be right. Ernest, what's going on? As you gear up for fall, you need the right people on your team to help your small business fire on all cylinders. LinkedIn Jobs is here to make it easier to find the people you want to talk to faster and for free. When we're looking for a sound engineer, a graphic designer, or an editor, LinkedIn Jobs is the first place we go. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 810 million people. Then add your job in the purple hiring hashtag frame on your LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring so your network can help you find the right people to hire. Simple tools like screening questions make it easy to focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience so you can quickly prioritize who you like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. 
LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash EYL. That's linkedin.com slash EYL to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So people wanted to do business with me and they seen that like, yo, he's different. On top of that, early on, I knew that I always wanted to be what? The Lord of my land. So I knew that I always had an investing mindset. So I started to learn the game on the investor side. So this allowed me to have different types of conversations with people, not just, oh, you got to get your first house. Mm -hmm. Like for me, it was like, yo, have you thought about investing into an Airbnb? Have you thought about getting into this? People like, no, but I was doing my homework because I was also learning from like bigger pockets. Right. So all of these things, I'm bringing the energy, teaching them what I know. And they like, oh, so it just all opened itself up for me because I kept putting in the work every day. So I'm thinking to myself now, we, we still buy this furnace. Right. Still so buy this furnace. you get the one home turns into two. And then obviously I'm, I'm assuming that referrals and obviously grinding every weekend changes. It. At what point do we do we put a goal in mind and say, like, if I get to this number, now we can we we can find the house that we need or because I know forty six homes eight million obviously is commission based right so like it, what was the plan to get out of the basement now yeah yeah hundred percent so we I, we had that plan every single day mm -hmm. um but what wound up happening was I wound up meeting with a lender and he put me on game right and and so this is not financial advice but what he wound up telling me <laughs> he was like yo because because I was now making the commission. But the problem was when you self-employed, banks want what? They want two years, right? Before, And this is still pretty close to 2008. So they ain't letting up at all. So I'm like, man, I got the money now. I could put the down payment on the home, but a bank's never going to approve me on it. So he like, well, you know, you want a real estate team. What about if you go to your real estate team leader, he puts you on a salary, right? Salary. And then, you know, that's how you can show because now you got to pay stuff. And I was like, oh, so I went to uh, one of my guys who had a team and I wasn't on his team at this time, but I'm like, yo, like I approached him with a no lose situation. And I was like, well, what do you think about if you give me the salary, you let you give me this money, I'll let it sit, I'll let it sit seasoned. And then also I'll pay any of your payroll taxes or whatever income taxes that you incur on this. But this will allow a bank to approve me. I'm putting my own down payment and everything down. And that was exactly what we did. So I found the house. He did that for me. I wound up showing a bank. Bank took the the uh you know the the pay stub, mm -hmm. and uh, that was how we bought our house. So at what point it was probably about four months into me selling houses. So this was all still within that first year yeah. of me, like nine months. But that was the thing because we knew we had to get up out of that house. Because it was just, it was crowded and stuffed anyway. And obviously she looked at it as she was doing us a favor. But we also got a two-year-old son and this loud because she also at this time has a junior in high school. And keep in mind, she's going through a divorce situation. Mm -hmm. So so it's kind of being the cool mom, right? So she letting everybody come over and, and then we was like, yo, we got to get up out of here. So not only are you selling real estate, you invest in real estate. Invest in real so estate. Currently, I think you have 6.5 million in commercial real estate. Correct. And where's that at? That's in Omaha. So when did you start investing in real estate? And you did that within 12 months, if I'm not mistaken, right? Correct, correct. So how did that come about? Yeah, so that's in the last 12 months. So how I started investing, how I first got going in real estate in the beginning was um, another deal. So I was... I knew that I wanted to become an investor. So after we got our house, this was probably like six, seven months, I still knew that I wanted to start owning the land. Because if you're a real estate agent, don't get me wrong, you get to serve your clients and it's the highest impact that you can have, but you still got a job. 
right? If you say, look, I want to go see this house. I got to make sure that I'm there to be able to see this house or show you this house. So for me, I was like, man, I want to get a property. So what wound up happening was I wound up connecting with a, um, a lender and I go to her right after we got the house. So this was within like three months of getting the house. And she's like, okay, well, what type of assets do you got? I'm like, I got this house, but literally I just got the house. And at that time, that first house, we did an FHA loan on it. Right. So that, so we only put three and a half percent down. So we didn't have no equity. And so um, she's like, OK, well, that's not going to work. And she's like, well, how much cash you got? And I'm like, well, I probably got like fifteen thousand dollars from commissions. And she's like, well, that ain't that ain't really going to get it done. And I was like, well, look, I got one car that's paid off. It's like a GMC terrain. And then I got a Kia Forte, which is my car. And I was like, so I got two cars. What can we do that way? And she's like, well, the terrain, we could probably get like twelve, fifteen thousand dollars off of that. And then she was like, and then the Kia, you don't own it outright yet, so we can't. And I was like, well, what about if I do this? What about if I pay it off and then I bring you the pink slip back? And she was like, well, I mean, you see what you could do. Now, she didn't really think that I was going to do it. But within that next like 45 days, I paid off the Kia and I hit her back up and I'm like, hey, OK, I got two pink slips here right now. What can we do? And so she's like, all right, let me see what I could do for you. And so I go back and uh, she comes back. She gives me a twenty five thousand dollar line of credit. Right now, this time I'm like, I don't really even know what I'm going to do with the line of credit, but I'm like, man, I want to get some real estate. So I wound up finding a property on the MLS and uh, the property was listed for $40,000. Now, I knew that uh, I only had $25,000 and originally I was like, well, I, because it was in North Omaha, which is kind of like, you know, it's kind of the hood of, of Omaha. So I was like, okay. So $40,000, what can I offer? Long story short, I wound up getting that property under contract for $18,000. Wow. Then I put $6,000 into it. I didn't do none of the work, had the contractors, everything. So $24,000, I'm all into it. I did what they called a Burr method, which I bought it, I rehabbed it, I refinanced it, I rented it out, and then repeat. So right when I did that, it probably took me 30 days to get the contractor, to do all of the work and everything. So $24,000. Then when I refinanced it, how much do you think the property came out at? I'm going to go 60. 100? Nah, it was $70,000, right? So $70,000. So I was all in for $24,000, got my money back, right? And I made $50,000 off of the deal almost, right? And then I was renting it out. How much do you think I was renting it out for? In the hood in Omaha. Three bedroom, one bath. Three bedroom. Eleven hundred. Close. Nine seventy five. Right. So I'm nine seventy five, and what was the best thing about it? So I'm bringing in what five? Because I would say offer the mortgage on it, it was like four hundred. So I'm renting it out for nine seventy five. So it was like five seventy five. But the best part about that whole entire deal was what? <laughs> All these questions, I love it. Um, the best part is you took the money out, and you I still, you still, you don't, you don't. I didn't use any of my own money yeah, you, you good. to buy it or to make the money. You feel what I'm saying? Yeah, you leverage the, the credit. I I left and my cars. And your cars. Right? And it's very, but that's where relationships come in at. Yeah. Right? Because I did it off of a deep, off of two depreciating assets. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, banks don't want to lend on cars. Houses are appreciating assets. So that was how I did it. Then we took that money out. Then we went and got a flip property where we flipped that. I think I bought that one for like 45000 wound up selling it for 130000 using that same repeat capital mm -hmm. because I paid off the 25000 And so that was how real estate investing started for me. And that was where. So, so, so what's, your, what's your method of when you're choosing a house, right? Like you said that that one you bought, you renovated, you refinanced it, you repeated. That's another one you said that you flipped. What's your strategy? When you're assessing a property to say, all right, this is a good deal. Is it like a numbers game that you look at and say it has to be, 
meet this or I can't be involved? Like, what, what's, the, what's the process for you? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing I'm always looking at is cash flow. Cash flow on the property, right? Okay. So for me, if I can cash flow, and and everybody has different numbers about this, but if I could cash flow about $400 a month off of a property, I know that obviously that's a good deal for me. Now that's after CapEx expenses. That's obviously after everything. I want to profit $400 a month. The second thing that I'm looking at is I'm looking at location and what's my end goal for the use of it, right? So if we're airbnb in, I got to make sure that I'm in a good location, right? If, uh, if I'm renting it to a single family, I want to know what's the school district like. I got to have something that I could sell on. So those are, I think every deal is a little bit different. But the other thing is when I'm going off of numbers, ideally, I want to be a 65% ARV or I want to be a 65% when I buy the property mm -hmm. because I know that I'm going to try to refinance and then I'm going to flip it out. And with banks, the lower that obviously you are, that's the easier it is for you to do some type of a cash out refinance. So that's where I try to be when I buy a property at 65%. Um, and yeah, that's how I always look at real estate when I do it. It's all for those three things, right? How, how low can I get the deal? Where's mm -hmm. the location at? And also how much I could cash flow because I never, ever, and I learned this early on in the game, but I never, ever rely off of appreciation, right? Appreciation is a cherry on top, but I know that if I'm cash flowing at the end of the day, it doesn't even matter if the market crashes. Why? It's because I'm not looking to sell. It's just like, you know, if any market crashes, as long as you don't got to sell tomorrow, it don't matter. But is that cash flow still going to come in every single day? So, so when you're, I mean, being an agent is a tremendous advantage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? When you're oh, listing. Yeah. Are there times when you look at a property and you're like, yo, before this gets listed, I need to probably make it. A move on it? A hundred percent. hundred percent. And that was how I got the flip property. Okay. Uh, so yeah. And, and it's all for the relationships, right? If people know that you're an agent, because I would probably say, you know, and it's different in different parts, but I would probably say 85% of real estate agents know nothing about investing. Might even be closer to 90%. Wow. Nor do they own any real estate property. Because when you first get your license, everything is commercialized and everything is the retail side, right? You got to do open houses. You got to do door knocking. You got to do cold calling. And when, if you join a team, they're not talking to you about the investing side, right? But the investing side is probably even where you want to be because if you get a quality investor, somebody that's really willing to pay, you now don't have to exert yourself so much, right? Because keep in mind, it's transactional if I'm doing the retail side. Mm -hmm. I got to keep going to get more clients. Now, obviously, at the end of the day, I hope that my sphere, my network will refer people to me, but there's no guarantee on that, right? And everybody has a real estate license. There's one point, the, the stat is, there's 1.9 million real estate licenses in the US, right? But the National Association of Realtors also says that over 87%, I want to say now it's 90% of real estate agents get out of the business within the first five years of getting their license, right? Why? It's not because they don't want to sell real estate, but it's because right when you get your license, I mean, it's kill or be killed. It really is. You got to become your own marketer. You got to become your own assistant. You do your own paperwork. And most of the time, real estate agents, they think that they're becoming an entrepreneur, but what they're really becoming is a solopreneur because you got to learn the business of how do you collaborate? How do you leverage other people? So it's not very easy at all, but the more relationships that you can build, people will start coming to you like, hey, I got this property. You know, I'm about to put it because we all want to serve our clients, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. We, I want to know that I could get this property sold before it even hits the market because now you like, yo, that's my guy. And if I need any other property to buy or sell, I know where I'm going. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, those stats are alarming. I would think, obviously, you have the inside look before any retail client has it. Right. You're looking at it first. That's, that's interesting that most people aren't investing. What, what about trust, right? You, you talk about being in Omaha, right? There's not many people that look like you. Right. So, I mean, 
what what was that like, right? Because I'm sure you've 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 dealt with situations that you know a lot of us face uh, injustice and, and racism. So how did you combat that? Yeah, man. So I think for me, I always looked at it as you know, at the end of the day, I think most people have a good heart. I think that what happens though for a lot of people is the way that you carry yourself, you got to be able to adapt in any room. For me, I think I was always, again, being in Chicago, but then also being in Sioux City, Iowa, to being in Omaha, I understood how I could adapt. I never felt like I had to sell my soul. I never felt like I had to do it. I was always me, Mm -hmm. right? I always, but I think when you talk about how do you build trust with somebody, I think the first thing that I learned, and it came from the book of reading um, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, right? So for me, I always tried to be more interested than interesting, right? I was always asking questions. I was always trying to figure out how I could serve somebody else. So how I was building trust and relationships was I was trying to give value to any and everybody, whether that meant that I was just giving you the information on the real estate game, whether that means that I was connecting you with somebody. Like one of the times, uh, I'll tell you, so here's one story that that happened to me that was, that was just super crazy. So I had a guy that I didn't know him at all, um, but I went to a networking conference and uh, this was in Omaha. I went to a real estate networking conference and I didn't know the guy at all. And uh, I wound up getting introduced to a different guy. And this guy was just watching me, but I saw him watching me, older white guy, mm-hmm. right? And I saw him watching me. And uh, he, so I'm talking to this dude and then he walks over and he's like, hey, uh, can I ask what your name is? And I'm like, my name's Casanova. And he's like, okay. He's like, uh, I've seen you before. And I was like, okay. And then he was like, are you in real estate? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, okay. And then he was like, I'm so sorry to interrupt. If I remember correctly, because this happened like five years ago. He's like, I'm so sorry to interrupt. I just, I thought I seen you before and, and uh, I like the things that you're doing. And I'm like, all right, cool. Never heard from this guy again, right? He then, I was about a year, year and a half later, I get a phone call and uh, it's a guy, have you ever, have you guys ever heard of JetLink? Earn Your Leisure is supported by First Republic Bank. You've worked hard and now it's paying off. That's why it's time to start working with a financial partner who will always have your back. With First Republic Bank, you get a personal banker who's ready to sit down, listen, and provide the answers you need, no matter how complex your questions are. Whether you're interested in residential lending or curious about other banking products, you can reach out to your own personal banker by phone or email or visit in person. It's all a part of First Republic's commitment to delivering extraordinary service every time. To learn more about their extraordinary service, Visit firstrepublic.com. That's firstrepublic.com. Remember, FDIC, equal housing lender. Uh, no. no. So it's like net jets, right? They, they, they do memberships for people who fly private jets mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So I get a call from a buddy of mine, and he is uh, CEO of JetLinks. And uh, he's like, hey, do you know this, this guy? And then I was like, no, I don't know him. And he was like, he said he met you at a conference. And then I was like, oh, okay, cool. And he was like, well, uh, he's got some real estate that he wants to do with you. And I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. So we wound up having lunch. And he was like, yo, I'll tell you, I've never seen anybody command a room the way that you did. And he was like, I got a $750,000 house. And he was like, I want you to sell that house. And uh, I was like, okay, cool. So I sold the house. He also wound up buying two other properties for me about two and a half million dollars. I say that because at the time when I when that whole situation happened, it was the most it, it, white guy, right? Mm-hmm. Neither one of these dudes looked like me. Mm-hmm. So it was the most craziest situation that I think I ever been a part of where I was just being me, but they saw it, right? 
And I think that that's what I've always been able to do. I've always just been able to build relationships and it's always been genuine and my integrity's always been there. So I always just try to serve wherever I can. So let's talk about this commercial real estate. Yeah. How did you scale up in that? And when you, like, what's the process that you first got into commercial real estate? Yeah, yeah. So the first one was the daycare center. Now, what's crazy about it is uh, the, the, the daycare and, and both of it, it's with the daycare of, of how I have the uh, commercial. And people always ask me about the daycare now. But one thing I, I would be remiss if I didn't give the props to my wife. Uh, because that, that vision is really all hers. Um, now I tell you the story is even crazy about how we even got the daycare centers because, uh, so we had these two kids. Now I'll tell you both of my kids, because I had cancer, right? Both of my kids are miracle babies. And what I mean by that is when we first started trying to, to reproduce, uh, we went back to the doctors and we like, yo, it was two years. Like what, what happened? And, uh, they was like, Hey, if anybody, if you ask a, a OB, right. For any average couple, um, that goes to reproduce any given night, you have about a 15% chance of conception. Is it? Uh, yeah. That's what we were told. University of Iowa. 15%? 15% chance any given night. Any given night? Any given that's, night. That's pretty high. It's higher with, during ovulation though. Just what? On average. They just average it on, out. A, on just average it out. That's that's crazy. That's high. Yeah, yeah. That's dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's dangerous. I thought it was like during like the green week. Like <laughs> It's, well, you, like you say, you average. I know, I'm saying the average, but that's high. Yeah. They yeah. told us it was about 15% chance. Well, because of my cancer and the way, you know, uh, her body, right, it, we had less than 1% chance. So we was like, uh, so they gave us two options. We had artificial insemination, and then we also had in vitro. And I could share the story now because, you know, she's okay with, with me telling it. But in the beginning, it was like, yo, I definitely had to get permission from her. But we had that. that. And so... Um, in vitro at the time was like 13,000 a cycle, mm -hmm. right? And then our official insemination is like 1,300. So we like, and and at this time, I just beat cancer. So there's no way I'm about to go do a GoFundMe, nor were they around at this time because CJ's 11, right? So this is 11 years ago. So it's like, man. How, how old were you? Uh, so I would have been, what, 24? 23, 24? Okay. So we like, so I'm like, man, there's no way I'm, I'm about so to. So you, you wanted to have kids at 23? Yeah, yeah. We wanted to have our first kid. Yeah, we was. That's most people don't plan like that. What you're talking about, most people do that like in their 30s or 40s. Yeah, I've never heard people that do that like when they're 23 years old. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just it was that time for us. We was just like, yo, because I mean, so we're high school sweethearts. So I've been with her since what we were 14. So 20, I've been with her longer than I've not been with her. Right. Mm -hmm. So we've been through everything together. So it was just at that time that it was like, yo, let's, let's try to have one. So yeah, we went two years and we couldn't. And so it was like, shit. Okay. So go to the doctors. They tell us that. So then I'm like, okay, well, what are our options? So my mom winds up, cause we didn't have no money at this time. So my mom winds up giving us $1,300 out of like her, her money market account. And uh, so then over the next what 30 days, Julie winds up getting her period. Right. And so devastated at this time, because obviously that means that she's not pregnant. And and the way that it works, again, is going into it. But if you do in vitro, obviously you got multiple chances of it. Now, you could have multiples of, of twins and pregnancy and complications, but you got multiple chances where they'll put it together. Whereas if you do artificial insemination, they take the whole tube. And the way that I envision is like a turkey baster. They just put it all and you just pray. Right. Good luck. And so, yeah, good luck. So we tried that way and I only had two vials because here's the thing. If ever anybody goes through chemotherapy right before you do that, because it has potential to make you sterile, they make you put, you know, your semen in a vial. So that was what we did. I did at 15 years old and the University of Iowa stored. Oh, prior to. At 15. Oh, prior. Right. Oh, like prior. As, as like a. 
Capsule. Right, as a capsule. They stored it for me. Just in case. Just in case. Just in case. Wow. So that was why we went back to the University of Iowa, right? So we, we do this. And, uh, and that's what you used? That's what we used. We used one of the vows. That's Boom, 30 days later, she gets her period. And we like, like, the, oh my. There goes 1,300? There, there goes 1,300 and a vow. And the and and oh, semen. And, oh, and the semen. Really? So you only right? got one vow left. Only got one vow left. Now, keep in mind, they only keep it for a certain amount of time. Yeah, it's a crazy story. <laughs> <laughs> it's a crazy story. This is better than my health class. Yo, 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 your whole life is crazy, bro. Crazy, bro. So they only keep it for a certain amount of time. Me and my little man. It's like... <laughs> How long do they keep it for? I think it was like seven years. Shit, so, so you're about like to run out of time. Like run out. Right. Now, keep in mind, when they was hitting me up about this, I didn't have no money because after afterwards, you got to pay for them to keep it. So I treated them like a bill collector. So they're like, we're going to throw this away if you don't. So they're going to throw it away. So, uh, <laughs> no, but hold on. Hold on. So I'm skipping in parts of the story. No. So anyway, so I'm skipping through. Let me make sure I get the story. So 30 days, she gets her period. I wound up calling one of my brothers uh, who lives up in, in Poughkeepsie. Right, I met him online when, at the time when I was trying to be a professional gamer. I was trying to do the MLG. Oh, Poughkeepsie, New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True story. Man, like he was, so we was going through the whole gaming thing. I was Gears of War. I was about to become a professional gamer. Dead ass. So I turn this into a movie. <laughs> so look, I'm 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 I'm, uh, I'm in Sioux City. We live in Sioux City, but I remember calling him up on the phone after Julie tells me she gets her period because she's devastated. Right. And I remember calling him up on the phone. He in New York. I'm in Sioux City. I'm like, bro, like, what did I do to be so cursed in life? I'm crying to him on the phone. True story. Like that. I can't reproduce. Right. I'm like, well, I never killed. I never stole. Like what? He like, man, bro, it's going to be all right. Well, true story. Forty five days later, she wound up conceiving naturally. So that's how we had CJ. Conceived naturally. No NICU. No nothing. Hmm. So he was like, Fuck, yes. All right. So then. Now we have CJ. He's cool. Everything's going. Then after that, within that next couple of years, when the University of Iowa starts to call me. And, but at this time, I still don't got no money. Oh, so they, kept, they still kept it. They, they kept it. But then, so as they kept it, they started to call me like, yo, we need you to do or otherwise. So they wind up throwing, throwing it away. So then when we go to have my daughter, right? So CJ is 11. Jada's about to turn five in November. Um, so when we go to have her, we try again for two years. Right now, I go to call the University of Iowa back. Like, yo, can I can I get that? Seat? They like, we to... called you, you never answered. That's gone. Damn. So we like, damn. Well, what are we gonna do now? So then we just try to keep trying, keep trying, and we couldn't. So about another year goes by, and one of my guys in Omaha, his mom is like the number one adoption attorney in Nebraska. So we was getting ready to adopt. Never was opposed to giving another child a better life. And we supposed to meet with her on that Monday. I shit you not. We supposed to meet with her on that Monday, sign the paperwork, go all through it. And then that Sunday night, Julie takes a pregnancy test and she's pregnant. And that's how we had my daughter. And so we got blessed with that one too, because we didn't, we didn't never know that we was going to be able to. So getting back to it, we talk about the daycare. So then after we have my daughter, comes out, no NICU, no nothing, both kids beautiful. Then uh, probably about, I'd say six months after we have my daughter, everything's good. Julie starts having pain, you know, when we're intimate. And then so we go back to the OB and he like, yo, you got some scar tissue in there. We, we recommend getting your, your, you know, your woman parts out. And so it's like, damn. So she's devastated. She comes from a big family, mm. right? And so she's devastated at this part. But I told her, I'm like, yo, it's always a silver lining in everything, right? Like, at least we got two kids. Some people aren't able to have one kid. 
Mm. Right. We got yeah. two kids that came naturally. Awesome. Like we got to be blessed. And so she hearing it. So then I go to, so she, after she does the surgery, she gets it done right away. So then over the next uh, six weeks, she's uh, off work, right? It's a post-op, everything. So I go in to pick up my daughter from the daycare and uh, the owner flags me down and she's like, hey, hey, you Jada's dad, right? I never met her before. My daughter had been at the daycare for probably about nine months, but it was always just the director. And I'm like, yeah, uh, I am. And then so she's like... Um, just want to let you know, we're about to close down this location in about three weeks. You're more than welcome to bring her to one of our other two daycares, but we're closing this one down. And I'm like, okay, thanks. So we had already been looking at another daycare center, but it was a losing business. And so it was like, uh, I go home and I tell Julie and uh, I'm like, yo, you thinking what I'm thinking? And she's like, well, how will we do it? I'm like, don't worry about it. Just say yes. We'll figure it out. So we did that. Within the next three weeks, we got turned down by three different lenders. That whole story, that's a whole nother thing of, of how we go through the process on all that. Mm -hmm. Brand new, just going to open up a daycare. Now, keep in mind, we wasn't buying her business. We was taking over the lease and then we was going to start our own. But we needed at least some funding because so, we ain't had no money. So we wind up next three weeks. We did wind up taking over the lease. Uh, we went from zero to 70 kids in nine months. Uh, pandemic then hits, take us back down to, to 28 kids. Built it up. Now we got over 100 kids in that center and we're building out another center. And this was all within the last three years. Wow. Okay. Okay. So you took over the lease. Took over the lease. Was it a, a lease with the option to buy? No, no, no. So it was in a big commercial kind of strip mall center. Oh, okay. Yep. So it had a front on the street, but she had three years left in her lease. Yeah. Right. So we took over that lease and then she had her other business. That's why we didn't buy the business because she yeah. was still an operating business. Yeah. But from us, I was just like, yo, I understand marketing. Right. You got the vision. You're going to be in there every single day. That's what you want to do. Like, why can't we make this thing work? Mm -hmm. We had a vision of how we were going to be different. You know, obviously we had to get the business plan together, all of that. And we did it. And then, yeah, zero, 70 kids in nine months in the center. And it's crazy. So but, so how did you still get into buying commercial real estate? Because you didn't own that property. We didn't right? own that property. So now, and so we just bought, this was at the beginning of this year. So uh, so what happened was around last November. So we're going, everything's going well. And, and I know that we don't want to sign this lease again, right? Because it's about to come up where he's going to like, yo, we want you to sign three to five years. And so I'm like, nah. So we started looking, looking, looking. And um, we wound up uh, finding a property that was like literally less than a mile. Long story short, we, and we don't have any affiliation with this uh, business, but they had a daycare center. Um, there was a standalone building less than a mile north of where we currently are. It's 10,000 square feet. We only had capacity in the space that we were leasing for 84 kids. This daycare center has capacity for 165 kids. They wound up getting into a situation where it was, you know, they had to shut down, right? Without going too deep into their business, uh, they had to shut it all down. So we looked at it. We was like, man, we're going less than a mile north. It allows us to double our capacity and we have a standalone building. I went after it. So we went after it, uh, wound up getting a bank to, to like the first bank that we had. So we were already, here's another thing that I guess would help to, to know. So as we're looking for this space, one of my partners comes to me and he's like, yo, we got a vacant lot. You know, it's it's probably about two miles away from where our current location is. Y'all should bring a daycare and put it here. So he was like, oh, okay. So then we wound up signing and doing that. Okay, we're going to do it. So we already got that one paperwork. Everything's in motion. This was probably back in last May, right? When we first originally signed off on everything. Now this building comes about. This building, they got it listed for $2.7 right? So we like, oh, okay, well, we want to get it. If we can get this thing at like $2.4 it would be great. 
So we wind up losing out on the building that we're going after with the 165 kids. We wind up losing out on that building two times, right? Last year in August was when we first started pursuing it. Both of the other people, buyers, wind up falling out. Then we're getting ready to do a second build out, a build to suit. And the day before we sign the lease, the real estate agent, the commercial agent that's on the, the property that we were trying to buy, he calls me up. He's like, hey, these buyers are about to fall out. We all still got any interest in it. So I'm like, okay, let's see. Like, what can we do? So we wound up getting that deal together. We wound up purchasing that building, $2.2 million. Uh, we got everything included in it. So keep in mind, this was like a daycare in a box because they had all of the cots. They had everything already in it. And so we wound up getting that building. Uh, we got it appraised, $2.85 million, And that was how we got that one. And so we closed on that in January and we owned the building. So we wound up moving from our location where we were leasing to the location that we got now. And then we also got the other one that we signed off on that we're building. And once that one's all appraised out, that one's 11,000 square feet, be state of art, brand new. So once that one's all done, it'll be worth 3.7. So the, the first one that you wanted to get it for 2.4, did you get it for 2.4? We got it for 2.2. You got it even less. We got it even less. And so now you're 600 in equity because yep, it appraised at 2.8. Yeah. So that's, that's the 6.5 million right there. That's the 6.5 million. Two daycare centers. Two K day, daycare centers. Okay. So, so how, how many kids can fit? Because you said the square footage is important. So how many, 11,000 square feet permits you to have how many kids? Uh, so in, in Nebraska, it depends on the storm shelters. Right, uh, so so it's storm shelters, not even tornadoes. About that. Yep, for tornadoes and all that. So it's not about how big the building is; it's about how big did they build the storm shelter. So that was the problem. We had seventy five hundred square feet in the building that we was leasing, but it only had because of the size of the storm shelter, we only had capacity for eighty four kids. Right, and the fire marshal will come in there because every single year when you're licensed by the state, they have all these different requirements. Like it's five point five square feet per person, not just kid, but that's teachers and kids included. Mm -hmm. So you got to go off of that. So that's what makes it different in Nebraska. It's all about your storm shelter. Yeah, but I mean, you, the story is just so like great. When did you start learning about all the intricacies of being a daycare owner, right? Because you're coming from a real estate agent to now a real estate investor. Now you got a daycare. Obviously it's a business, but you need to know all the legalities. So like, like, yeah. Is it you and your wife? You're just figuring this out? Like, who, what, what, how y'all, how y'all doing this? Yeah, yeah. So 100% my wife. I got to give her all of the credit, right? Obviously, I do all of the marketing. Got a marketing firm. I do all of the marketing. I also built all the relationships, right? Now, that's from the outside in. So when I say relationships, I met with the lenders, with the commercial agents, with everything else. But as far as like the, that was her dream, her baby, right? So when people ask me, like for me, I've always been a hustler. I've always been able to go out and get it and build relationships. But this is where I feel like for me, I got an opportunity to take it to the next level because I saw my wife and she was trying to get out of what you would call corporate America. She's got no degree, no nothing. Now I'm literally, I'm able to do whatever I want to do. Because real estate, right? I could, if you want to see a property at 4 p.m., I could go show you that property. I could be back at home with the kids. Maybe I got another client so I can maneuver how I wanted to. Whereas for her, she's inside eight to five all day. So I could see that she just wasn't happy. So when we got this opportunity, I looked at it as a way to be able to make sure that my kids could see that their mom could also go after her dream as well. Like think about it. My daughter now, she'll never have to grow up thinking that she has to work for somebody else. Right. So this was that opportunity for me because my wife's always believed in me. 
always believed in me. I mean, the whole journey of the real estate. So that's why I always got to give her the credit mm -hmm. and I could never. And so that was her passion. She knew from a rip. I mean, we had a day, oh, we had a daycare in our home back when we was, what, 20 years old. This was back in Sioux City. But we had friends, right, that she was watching their kids. Mm. So then they was bartending, they was doing whatever. So then they'd come in and be like, hey, my check wasn't that much, that, you know, serving. <laughs> and so she's like, yo, I don't got as much to pay you this week. I ain't got it. Right, I ain't got it. Can I get you next week? It's like, wait, that's not how this works. Like, this is a real business I'm trying to run here. So she got burned out on that right away, right? So this opportunity, when I saw that I had a chance to be able to speak life into her and allow her to be able to go after her dream, I jumped all in on it. So with the daycare, I always got to make sure Sure, like, yeah, I was on the backside and yes, I signed my name on it, but this has always been her passion, her dream and everything. And she's in there. So she was the active director just now. Now that obviously we're in Dallas and we got two daycare centers. Now she's obviously started to understand the real game of entrepreneurship and building up leaders. But before that, these last three years and everything of how we, I mean, at one point, the toughest thing about daycare and uh, for a lot of people, they, they see all of the money in it. And don't get me wrong. I mean, you think about $235 uh, dollars per week times, let's say 165 kids, even on the low end at 100 kids, right? You look at that times 52 weeks, like r right away, banks love them numbers, right? On the low end for us this year, off of just one center, it'll be 1.2 million, right? Just on the low end. And uh, that's a revenue coming in. Now, obviously you got to pay out your staff, you got to do other things, but there's a lot of ways for you to subsidize those types of things, right? Government loves daycare centers. Just going to ask that, like right? government funding, I'm sure. Lots of government funding, yeah. right? Well, you just got to know about it, but you got to also have the relationships with the lenders. You got to also have the relationships with um, DHHS, right? Any of the places, because if you don't, then they don't tell you about it. You don't know what you don't know. Right. And on top of that, they got to know that you run in a business that, you know, at the end of the day, it's something that is going to be sustainable. So she's done that. Um, her vision of everything of how she wanted the leadership, how she wanted the culture. And we got great staff at the daycares. Um, so that was the thing. And the other thing I think is what allowed us to be able to grow so fast is we had a couple of different things of what we knew, how we were going to be different. Number one is the focus on diversity. Right. I think for a lot of centers, like when you're building out the find the foundation of a young child's mind, you got to make sure that you promote diversity. And that was one of the things that we was able to articulate very well, which allowed us to grow very fast. And then the other thing um, was the culture of we're not just a babysitting place. Like she let that be known from the beginning. Like we're not, you're not just bringing your kid to us and we're going to babysit. Like literally we're going to teach him. We got a curriculum. We're not a Montessori. Right. But there's a curriculum. We're going to make sure that when your child gets ready for kindergarten, like they're ready. And so that's where I think that we've gotten a lot of the praise. And when you can see the director that's in there, that's putting in the sweat equity, how do you not love it? And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I think. How, how, how much does like the average kid pay? Uh, back in Omaha. So every place is different. Depending in, in, on your, the in your, in your market. Yeah. So back in Omaha, the average is around 235, a um, two thirty five a week. A week. Yeah. So you looking at definitely, I mean, but it depends on where you are as well. Cause if you go to a, like, and I don't want to, the, some of the bigger schools, right? Some of the bigger, like, national franchises and things like that. Like, and, and here's the other thing I'll say is that's on average between all of the different kids. Because if you got an infant, it's not crazy to think that you could be at 350, yeah. 375 a week. But obviously, if you got school-age kid, you know, that's more like 185, 195. So that's why I say, but it depends on where it is. Because, you know, if you in Texas or if you're in a high market, California... I'm sure they super taxing. So it always depends. It's relative to So like a thousand dollars. Thousand dollars, I say. Yeah. What what's what's the age range? Infant to to what? 
Uh, so ours, it goes from six weeks old to 14 years old, I want to say. Oh, okay. 14 years after school program? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, we got different rooms that kids can come in there and it's not necessarily after school program, but we, one of the ways that uh, we did also be able to bring in a little bit more income is doing uh, school runs. Right, so taking kids to school in the morning and mm-hmm. also picking them up. So that's another way that you can help parents out. Or if, as they, well. if they work early, yeah, yeah, early drop off and late pickup. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And we're six, we're six to six. Um, so we haven't even gotten into where it's, it's like in Dallas. One of the more popular things is uh, doing twenty four hours. Right. Because you got places that work third shift, things like that. But there's a lot of a lot of liability because we even talked about that in Omaha. And the biggest thing is, you know, you got to like for one of the things that, that Julie implemented as well, which is uh, something that parents love. Right. But when you come in as a staff, you have to put your cell phone in this like compartment. Right. So there's no cell phones that's in there with your kids where and we have cameras, all of that. But that shows you that the focus is on your child, not on, oh, let me just because everybody could have an excuse. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when she first implemented that, I was like, yo, like, I don't like I don't know if I'm going into a play, but the staff understand it because and teachers or parents understand it. Right. Why they would want that. And so I think that's one of the selling points as well that we've been able to do um, that's allowed us to grow so fast. Do, do y'all have a direct connection with the school districts that the daycares are in? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Yep. So I'm thinking like if this, when the kids get out of school, they're getting bused to the daycare. Yep. Absolutely. Oh, okay. And I mean, we have we have branding on our vans. Things like that, right? So that's the other thing. Like, you'll get a call and it's like, hey, I, I seen you guys are picking up that kid. My kid goes to that school. You know, um, you know, I just wanted to know what does that look like after school? What's the name of the daycare? Uh, Peekaboo Daycare. And yeah. what's, the, what's the process to get certified to become a daycare in your state? Yeah, yeah. So you, there's different licensing requirements that you have to go through. Obviously, there's background checks, uh, things like that. Julie does handle most of that stuff. Like I said, I'm on the outside looking in. So if she's watching this, uh, she's definitely going to be because that's what it is. We yeah. knew our roles, right? Yeah. It was like, that's I, my thing is, I know, and I know a lot of people love to ask about the daycare and I know more from a numbers perspective. But for me, I never try to overshadow that because that is her baby. Yeah. So if we're talking about roles, I'm thinking like, all right. You have the real estate background. Mm-hmm. She obviously has the daycare background. Is this how we scale it? Do we now look for other places? Well, you go out, obviously, you're looking for more commercial real estate. We already know the infrastructure, what we need to do from the daycare standpoint. Rather than having two, let's have five, let's have ten. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm that guy of, of the five, seven, ten, fifteen, right? <laughs> yeah. But then she's obviously in that day-to-day. She's the hiring, everything else. So I also got to be patient with her. And obviously, I got my hands in a lot of other things. So it's not all of the focus of the daycare. But I got to be patient with how she wants to do it. Because like I said, it is her baby. But that is the vision, right? Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, uh, so for us, we understood that we wanted to do learning centers. So with the daycare, there's... There's so much liability with it that that's where you got to have the right teachers, right? The teachers that are teaching, not just because here's all it takes is one time, right? For all it takes is Mm -hmm. one time, especially you got these. what, What I used to always say back in Omaha was West Omaha moms in the know, right? They got these Facebook groups. And all it takes is one time for them to say that, you know, you you was negligent with somebody's child and it could tear so, you down right away. Yeah. So that's why I say I got to be patient about it. But from a numbers perspective and from an impact perspective, I think it's very, very important because we see that every single day, you know, these kids are, are being shipped into the world, but they don't have the right foundation. Right. And and so that's where I think that these learning centers and these child care centers that we have is uh, is impact impactful. But again, I give her all the credit on it. So you um you had the forty six 
houses in in Omaha. Yeah, but now you're in Dallas. Are we? Are you attacking it with the same ferocity? Like I gotta, I gotta build up my portfolio here too. Or are you like, all right, well we got the forty six there. Let me just slow grind this out here. Figure out the demographics here. Figure out the the, the area. And then you're licensed there, so. It's a, it's a whole new process now for a new, new state? new process. Yeah, so for me, um, now that I just, it's a whole new process. So when you're moving there, Texas is the only state that doesn't have reciprocity. Uh, mm-hmm. At least, I don't know if they're the only state, but here's what I know. Texas does not have reciprocity. Mm-hmm. So for like to get your real estate license in uh, Nebraska, it's like 60 hours that you got to take. But in Texas, it's 180. And since they don't do any reciprocity, you got to do the whole 180 hours. So I did that. I knocked it all out in one week. Uh, took that test yesterday and, and I'm licensed. But now my focus um, is more about building up the team. So I'm a part of a brokerage that uh, EXP Realty. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of EXP, but I'm a part of a brokerage that fastest growing brokerage uh, ever. And for me, it's about finding other real estate agents that want to be able to scale their business. Now, on the commercial side, I'm obviously going to be looking to do more daycare centers, development, things like that. But it's all based off of the relationships and where I feel like I could add value. But right now, my my goal, even over the last two years, because of all the things with the podcast and everything that we have going on, hasn't been uh, focused on finding buyers and sellers, even though I help. Right. But it's just mm-hmm. making sure. I could add value. And if I can't, then I'm referring it off to my team. So let's talk about this before we leave. Um, your podcast. Yeah. You're in the media space. Dream Nation. Shout out to Dream Nation. Yes, yes. Very important. <laughs> EYO Network. So yeah. talk about talk about the the journey of having a podcast. Yeah. So it's been so inspiring for me. I, I tell you the reason why I started the podcast was I believe that everything starts with the dream. Right. And those of us who dare to dream while the rest of the world is settling for what society tells us or deems is our reality. We're the ones who stand to be trailblazers, change makers. And ultimately, we make this world a better place. And so for me, as I started to tell my story, it was like, yo, I want to be able to build more relationships. And so I was like, OK. And, and here's the thing. I knew that my story was very inspiring and, and very impactful for a lot of people hearing it. But I was like, yo, I got to think if I want to be on bigger stages, if I want to be able to share my story, what do I got to do? If I was to just go to y'all and be like, yo, I want to share my story. Y'all be like, OK, but yeah, 100,000 people want to share your story. Right. So for me, I was like, well, what's the better way to approach this? So I developed my own platform and then I could share other people's stories, which I knew that down the road. Right. Just same thing. Why I got my real estate license. Mm-hmm. If I served other people first, I knew that it would come back to me. So that was what I did. And then starting out in the beginning, I mean, I had to, to look at my situation. I knew that my family, I always wanted to be around my family. Yeah, that's how everybody knows that I'm a family guy. So I couldn't be leaving them all the time to be able to travel, right? And then on top of that, a lot of people wasn't coming through Omaha. So what did I have to do? I had to start it virtually. But I was able to get, obviously, Rashad. I was able to get Grant Cardone, Jack Canfield. I think I'm up to seven New York Times bestsellers uh, on the show. And and uh, it's been a lot of fun. So the journey of starting it, I think for me, was just more about, one, I wanted to build relationships. Two, I wanted to be able to learn, right? And I knew that I couldn't, I, I mean, I could learn through podcasts and things like that, but I wanted to be able to ask the real questions. I wanted to be able to, to learn on my journey. And I felt like if I could develop a big enough audience Right. That then those people would come on and and uh, and want to be a part of my show and what I have going on. And so that was what happened. And I mean, we're at three hundred and sixty five episodes now. 
but the power of it has always just been on 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 the dream and me building relationships because I never paid anybody to come on the show. Just like y'all, like it's just sharing other people's stories mm-hmm. and hoping to be that Robin Hood. And so that's why even for me, when you got this point right here, I understood that like a lot of people, they don't have access to the information that we do. Why? It's because they don't have those relationships. And so for me, the fact that I've been able to build those relationships, that's how I give the people the access. 365 episodes. Congratulations on that. That's a level of consistency that most people can't even aspire to do. So congrats you on that, man. That's incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Nah, it's inspiring. Your story is definitely an amazing tale of overcoming adversity, never quitting, and um, keeping your eye on the prize. And I think it is something that not only is educational, but inspirational as well. Appreciate that. So keep man, going, I just, man. I want to say, I think the last thing I want to say is, uh, man, I, ju- I appreciate you brothers so much. And the reason why I say that, man, is because uh, obviously when we first got connected about it and, and talking about the EYL network, I seen like, I seen that there's an opportunity to really be able to impact on a global scale. And the thing that y'all, y'all did, like, I mean, you started out just two kids from, from New York. Right. And what y'all have been able to do, man, it's, it's inspiring to me as well. So I just want to say I appreciate y'all. I appreciate the platform. Um, but I'm looking forward to being able to go bigger, better. Uh, and yeah, man, I think in the dream we trust. Right. But you got to take action on something because otherwise that dream that you have, as I always say, if not, no action, it'll only merely be a fantasy. That's a fact. There you have it. Dream more. Gentlemen, download the Dream Nation podcast on all platforms, Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen to podcasts. What would you like to tell people? What, what, do, you, what do you want to end it with? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly what I said. You got to have a dream, right? I think we all got a dream. And at the end of the day, if you don't have a dream, I think you got to borrow somebody else's dream until you know you can figure out what your dream is. I think any dream is possible nowadays, right? I remember I was listening to the book, the Success Principles by Jack Canfield. And he was like, yo, I think you could do anything in this world and make money right now. He's like, let's say you just want to, you know, drink coffee all day and get paid for it. He's like, if you don't think that's possible, let me ask, what does Oprah do? Right? If you if you think about it, you know, other podcasts, <laughs> things like, like, that's what Oprah does, right? She <laughs> drinks coffee and gets paid to hear people's stories. Right? And so... That's an interesting way to put it. <laughs> no, I asked, there was actually this dude on YouTube, like, he just goes around and, and tastes food. That's his entire job. He's paid $140,000 a year. Well, food tastes are, that's always been occupation. That's a great job. Great job. <laughs> that's a great job. I mean, look at what we get to do. We get to travel and just eat food. This is like, perfect. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Like you said, what we what we get to do is like, you know. It's, it's crazy. It's, it's a blessing. It's a blessing to be able to do something that you want to do. Right. And not something that you have to do. Right. And that's what I told I, I told Abdullah that before. Like, you know, like our days is crazy. Like we started early, we're gonna finish late. All this we got a couple interviews earlier today. We're doing two interviews today. But I'm like, the alternative is having a regular job, which is no disrespect to anybody that has a regular job, but that's the alternative. Facts. So it's better to be able to, you know, provide your own pathway and do what you wanna do, even if it's longer hours, as opposed to being told what to do. Right. And I think the other part is you building legacy, right? Because that's the thing. If you had a job all day, it's not to say that you can't uh, impact. But, you know, I think the thing with this is we saw it at InvestFest, right? You've seen how many lives that you've changed. 
Right. And so that's the doper part about it is because, I mean, you could go out and you could just change a couple lives, which is your own family, your mm -hmm. legacy, which is great. But now you got so many people that's getting inspired. Right. 13,000 people at InvestFest. Right. That left out of there like, yo, I can't wait to get back home and implement X, Y, Z, whatever it was. And it started with two brothers just having a dream. That's a fact. That is a fact, Wise ladies man. and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, what's your social media handle? Casanova underscore Brooks. Uh, you can go to CasanovaBrooks.com or you can go to DreamNation.com. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Troy, housekeeping items? Yeah, shout out to Dream Nation. Shout out to Dream Nation. I want to say that again, man. Incredible podcast. Inc incredible host. Um, and it is on EYL Network. So shout out to everybody on EYL Network. All the shows, Ash Cash, uh, Rants and Gems with MG, the mortgage guy, and Kiana Watson. High level conversations with our brother 19 Keys, obviously marking Mondays with, with our brother Ian. Um, yeah, man, shout out to the entire team. Shout out to all the people on Patreon.com. Shout out to all our earners on EYL University and all the earners throughout the world. We greatly appreciate y'all. Shout out to all the people that support the merch and the entire merch team. Greatly appreciate it. Um, we love y'all, man. Thanks for rocking with us. My graduates from my school being Forbes, backdrop. Backdrop. <laughs> A mic drop. Bag drop. Bag drop. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade, or at least grab an extra latte. After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals24. That's Chime.com goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.